Wealthion. This is Wealthion founder Adam Taggart welcoming you back for one of our weekly, sorry, one of our monthly live Q and A's with Wealthion's endorsed financial advisors. These are the advisors that you see on this channel with me week after week after week. And what we like to do is uh, once a month, we like to get them all together and let you, the audience, drive the action by asking questions here in the chat. And I will be pulling as many as I can as we go through this process. And uh, we're going to try to get through as many of your questions as we can in the next hour. Uh, I'm joined as usual. Let me bring him up here um, by um, lead partners from New Harbor Financial. That's John Lodra and Mike Preston, um, one of the lead partners from uh, Real Investment Advisors. Uh, that's Mike Leibowitz. We got an upgrade today. We were able to kick that <laughs> Lance Roberts guy to the curb, bringing the real brains behind the operations. Uh, and then from Canada, we have Jonathan Wellam from Rocklink Financial. Gentlemen, thank you all for joining me here. Uh, this is live, and then uh, this will be a replay video on the Wealthy on channel. So if you missed it live, folks, don't worry. We're, we're here on the replay. Um, I think I've covered all the bases here. Folks, like I said, please uh, ask any questions you have in the live chat. I'll be pulling as best I can. A um, number of folks have been asking questions on Twitter in advance of today. So let me let me kick off with one or two questions, then I'll pull from the live chat. Um, title of today's uh, uh, video is, is the rally over? You know, we, we went into uh, 2023 after a battering time in the markets for 2022. The stock market really surprised to the upside for the first half of this year, but it kind of seems to have stalled out here and a lot of debate now whether this is just the pause that refreshes before it continues powering even higher or whether this is indeed a rollover in the markets. So, um, Michael, why don't we start with you? Um, is the rally over? I don't think so quite yet. Uh, you know, I, I think what we need to, to to better affirm that the rally's over is signs that a recession's coming on. And I'm a firm believer there's a recession coming. It's just a question of when. We have underestimated the stimulus that continues to trickle through the economy and, that, and, and beyond the stimulus, the behavioral patterns. Everyone wants to travel. They want to go out to eat. They want to spend money. They want to draw down savings, use credit cards. So the stimulus and the, the after effects have, have lasted longer than we thought. And rate hikes take a while to, infl to infiltrate the economy. I just saw a graph today that, you know, mortgage rates are up at seven and a half now, but the effective mortgage rate, so that's the weighted average mortgage rate for everyone that has a mortgage, is only up slightly from like 3.3 to 3.6. So that's an example that just takes a while for rate effects, for higher rates to affect the economy. And you know, when we get closer to a recession, when that becomes just a little more obvious, there are more signs, then I think the the stock market will peak. So the question is, when will we get those signs? And I think employment is the biggest indicator we can follow. Uh, jobless claims have, have ticked up very slightly, nothing alarming. The BLS employment report has really shown nothing to be overly concerned with. So we'll, we'll kind of look at the employment reports. And if we start seeing some weakening, I'm sure the market will as well. And then I think it's probably a better time to talk about market peaks. But again, it could be quite a few months before we start seeing some of that happen. Could even be next year. Okay, um, and just a quick little preview here. Um, I want to remind folks, uh, if you don't already know, that the Wealthy on Fall online conference is coming up. It's two months away. Um, everybody 
most of the folks watching here probably should have already gotten an email announcing this. But uh, to your point there about the importance of employment, um, that's part of Michael Kantorowitz's HOPE framework. Um, Longtime mm -hmm. viewers of the channel have seen Michael Kantorowitz here on this channel discussing it. Um, Michael is going to be there at that conference and will be giving us the latest data on the HOPE framework and what it's telling us. And of course, he's going to be laser focused in on that E part of the HOPE framework, the employment right. side. Um, all right, let's see. Um, New Harbor guys, I'm going to skip over you for one second just to pull Jonathan in here because he hasn't been in as many of these as you guys have. Jonathan, uh, anything to add to Michael's uh, outlook in general of just Hey, what probabilistically, you know, is this rally over or uh, like like Michael thinks, uh, is it are we going to have another resurgence here that could maybe last eventually into next year? Yeah, and from our perspective, what we do is we we're, we're actually focus most of our time looking at companies and valuation of businesses and so on. So there's no question we have to put that in the backdrop of the of the larger macro picture. And um, I don't disagree with what Michael has has laid out. Although uh, what I would, what I, when looking at valuations of companies, we think that most companies are quite expensive and we need to be very careful about where we are going. And so uh, from a Canadian perspective, we are seeing the interest rates uh, taking a big chunk out of uh, spending. Um, we are seeing slowdowns in our economy, um, you know, people drawing more on the credit cards and uh, more stress in the system. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion that it's, I think, going forward, getting more out of the markets and getting higher uh, valuations on the overall indices is going to be a tough battle. And uh, if it if they do go up, they'll be driven by a limited number of companies. So um, we see, you know, and we're looking at this thing, more headwinds, more more trauma is going to be coming. Uh, you know, the interest rates have gone up so dramatically on a very highly indebted population and, and businesses. Uh, we, you know, we listened to all the earnings reports of the companies we have and companies we're following. It's tough slugging. Uh, many of the companies have seen very little growth outside, of course, some of the tech companies, and most of the growth has come from price increases. And so, um, yeah, we'd be a little bit more cautious in terms of markets screaming higher or going higher um, and uh, and then focusing on businesses that we think have been left out or better valuations. And uh, we can pick up, you know, at high free cash flow yields and uh, are more sustainable businesses and can weather um, a tougher environment and uh, an increased cost of capital. Okay. And, you know, um, Jonathan, you were on the channel just last week and we talked about how Canada in some ways is a preview of what's to come for America um, because you guys in your housing market, about a fifth or more of your um, your housing inventory is, is repricing every year in terms of the debt behind it, right? Because you guys usually have five-year fixed mortgages and then right. some percentage just have variable mortgages. Um, so the lag effect is arriving faster, I guess, in, in your country. Um, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that later if we get time. Um, New Harbor yeah, guys. And, Oops, and, sorry, and, and, and with that, just Adam, it, we've actually seen many, many uh, people, Canadians, probably 10% of the population or more that have mortgages where their mortgages have literally doubled, doubled um, their mortgage payment. And so, uh, boy, does that ever take a bite out of it, particularly with housing prices or uh, car prices and, and leasing of cars and borrowing money with cars also, not to mention the food. So, yeah, it's coming. It's coming. There's no question. It might be a little more delayed in the U.S., but uh, the impact is going to be felt. All right. Well, you're going to be sort of an important canary in the coal mine uh, in this panel uh, because a lot of these effects are hitting sooner in your area. Um, all right, New Harbor guys, John, I'll come to you. Um, Mike, then feel free to jump in and piggyback off of anything that, that John says. Um, 
let's wrap this up about your guys' general view of, of, of where you know markets are likely headed from here. Um, maybe if you can, in your answer, address Jonathan's point that you know maybe this again is more of a time for real active management, where you're looking for the individual companies, you know, kind of the old style investing, versus playing sectors or ETFs or, or, or whatnot. Um, you know, are we entering a time where that's going to become more important too? Um, yeah. So I'll let you guys answer that, then we'll get to some of the questions here in the live chat. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for all the viewers and, and the great questions. Um, agree with a lot of what both Michael and, and Jonathan said. Um, you know, we too um, think we're probably going to see recession type uh, things take hold here. Uh, we're not going to get into the lag effect discussion because we've covered that with you and you, you and your guests, Adam, uh, plenty of times. But let me share a chart here just to kind of the, the, the employment picture is is a lagging indicator. And in fact, uh, it's, it's actually um, typically it looks very rosy, almost the rosiest it can be right before uh, uh, recessions. And it's only deep into the recession where that that metric looks the worst. In fact, uh, as as we historically come out of re recessions, typically the em employment picture looks the worst. So it's a classic lagging indicator. And let me just pull up a chart chart to uh, to uh, show that. Um, and let's see where we are here. Uh, let me uh, pull up. I'm sorry, it's not. That's oh, a window here. There we go. There we go. Apologize for the. Uh, fumble there. So hopefully you can see this chart. This just shows long, you know, back to 1950, the US employment, unemployment rate. You notice it it troughs typically right before recessions take hold and recessions are are uh, denoted by the gray area. So it's not surprising to us that we can still be talking about recession and the employment picture looks really good. Uh, and that's the linchpin to Michael Kentrowitz's hope framework. The E is the last shoe and it's a lagging indicator. So just want to share that. As relates to markets, uh, I'll just talk quickly about the uh, S&P. And um, again, I'll share a screen here. Basically, uh, we've had a pretty decent pullback here. We, we've sliced through the 50-day moving average on the, the S&P. Uh, we've rallied uh, right back to um, where we are there. Uh, so let me just show you that. Okay, and, yeah, sorry. Oh, there we go. Okay, great. All right. So this is the, this is the uh, S&P on, on a daily basis. Peak back here on July 27th, we've pulled back. This line here is the 50-day moving average. We sliced through that pretty convincingly. We've rallied here just below that. That, you know, from a from a pure technical standpoint, is a is an important line in the sand here. What it does from here is really important. If it breaks through that convincingly, we may see a run at uh, at the the uh, uh, these these prior highs, and in fact, maybe even the uh, January of 2022 highs. Uh, but uh, very much um, we could see things falter here and, and uh, you know, our downside near term target is probably closer to 4200, 4100, closer to the this 200 day moving average that 4200. So uh, we'll watch that and see how that plays out um, in regards to um, the notion of uh, picking amongst the broad markets uh, in individual stocks. We do think uh, there there will be increasing importance of that. We still think there's very um, pronounced dislocations even in broad sectors so some sectors are very strong others are not um, so we do think there's a, a, a sector play not necessarily an ind individual uh, play but broadly speaking the markets are, are overvalued typically we, we would look for um, more selective um, stock picking in a real washed out market we think that's you know uh, if, if we get a, a very washed out market we think that's where there can be some additional uh, value add by by picking individual stocks but a uh, lot to watch and, and observe here 
Okay, so just on that last point, you're kind of looking for like a baby with a bathwater moment where kind of everything gets flushed and then you go around and pick up real diamonds at that bargain fire sale prices. Exactly. Okay. Mike, real quick, anything to add to that? And then I'm going to dive into some of these user questions. No, I'll be, I'll be very brief. I think that these guys covered it very well. We look at price action more than economic data. Not that economic data isn't, isn't important to us. But we look more at price action. And I just find it interesting the way that we're framing this question, you know, is the rally over? In our view, although there can be no guarantee of this, the market actually topped over a year and a half ago in January of 2000. 22 and and so you know here we are still below those all-time highs and all the major indexes and we have had a very deep retracement of the of the quote-unquote bear market of 2022 we've got close to uh it's a little over 78 percent retracement it's actually uh just north of that which is the most extreme fibonacci retracement but you know this is this has been a massive bubble that we've all lived through and of course post covid we saw things that we never saw before like $7 trillion of new money introduced into the system. So it's not really a surprise that we've had the biggest bubble of our lives. And now we've got the, the largest topping process of our lives. So, you know, is the rally over? The rally is probably over a long time ago, but most people aren't just buy and hold investors and kind of sit through the whole thing. They're still relatively complacent because we're near the all-time highs. It's our view that as this bear market progresses, it's going to be, moving a lot lower and probably staying there for an extended period of time. That's why we're so vigilant. So we'll see. But but to us right now, it looks like the retracement ended a week or two ago. And as John just shared that chart, this would be a perfect place to expect um, uh, resistance and, and a rollover. We'll see if that happens. But uh, I think vigilance remains the key here. Okay, vigilance remains the key. Okay, so um, I'm going to bring up this question from user uh, Charger Mopar. Um, it's a big question, um, but I want to I want to use it as a jumping off point um, into talking about um, interest rates, where they're headed, and what that means for bonds. Um, so, Michael, maybe I'll I'll come to you first on this, um, but. Uh, so the question here uh, that he asks is, when the Fed ramps up QE in 2024, right, and obviously making an assumption there, uh, to suppress interest rates, are enough people aware of this scam to finally lash out against the Fed, or are we doomed to another bubble reinflation cycle? So obviously, I get kind of the spirit of what he's talking about here. <laughs> We've kind of been living in this cycle of, of um, you know, central bank intervention in the markets. The Fed is, you know, kind of like a tanker driver who, who steers all the way into one direction and then steers all the way in another direction here right so he's basically asking look are we gonna are we gonna be doomed to repeat this cycle i'll let you opine on that but but then i want to kind of jump into more of where do you see interest rates going from here because all of a sudden that's like the talk of the internet right it's like um wow yields are high and now they're going higher um it, bloomberg article just came out today that the fed funds rate might need to go up to six percent now um, and all of a sudden everybody's talking about what that means for bonds and there's a there's a really interesting debate going on right now amongst folks like your colleague and i believe yourself michael who are saying this is maybe one of the most attractive times to be buying bonds and moving out the the long duration curve where other people are, are increasingly saying 
um, hey, bonds are going higher from here on a secular basis, and why would you want to be in a long bond uh, in this environment? So a lot to unpack there, but but a quick reaction to charge more part question about the Fed, and then let's go to the yields. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So uh, I think the Fed, and for the last 100 years, the Fed has been manipulating interest rates, and I don't see any reason why they won't when we get to our next recession, whether it's 24 or 25, whenever it occurs. They will lower rates, they will do QE, and there's nothing that leads us to believe they will do anything different than that. The second part of the question is a little more interesting. Are we doomed for another bubble reinflation cycle? So you know, there, there's kind of two parts of that markets and actual inflation, because this was the first time in a while that the Fed has generated inflation from its QE and from its interest rate uh, policy. So I think inflation is the key one to unpack, and it does have a big effect on the asset markets. What happened in 2020 and 2021 was very different than what happened in the prior cycles because the fiscal stimulus was not only significantly more as a percentage of GDP, but it was also just given out. It, they literally were writing checks to people that spent that money pretty quickly. So they literally printed money. Typically, the relationship between the fiscal side and the Fed is not nearly as uh, well-coordinated and as timely as that was. So when I kind of think about what lies ahead, we're going to go into a recession at some point, and the Fed will lower rates. The Fed will probably start doing QE. The question for me is, what's the fiscal response? And if we start getting the COVID-like fiscal response to a, to a recession, then I think we are doomed for another you know, relapse of very high inflation. And potentially, the public starts really figuring out the Fed and, and starts getting aggravated about the fiscal side as well. But right now, it seems like the backlash against the Fed. I mean, look, they're talking about Powell being the greatest Fed governor ever because he you know, he lit the fire and now he's putting out the fire. Um, so I think time will tell on what what this looks like. But again, the markets, too. I think when we get into a recession, prices get beat up. Yes, QE has a positive effect on stock prices, and I think it will at some point in the future. Um, you know, then, Adam, you mentioned kind of a lot about bonds, bond yields, uh, what we think. Um, what yeah. we think- and Just in, to note, we've been getting a lot of questions both pre this video and now during. So a lot of folks are interested in this answer. So I think it all comes down to one question. I think this is why so many people are confused. If you graph the, the GDP trend and the inflation trend for the last 40 years, they're downward sloping. You have these downward sloping trend lines that are linear and you know, both GDP and inflation wiggle around it. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but the trend lines have 
are very dependable. And there's many fundamental reasons for those trend lines. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is there's just too much unproductive debt in the system and the productivity growth rate in this country continues to shrink. So the question that we all need to ask ourselves is, did something change in 2020, 2021, 2022? Has the economic and inflation trajectories the trend rates started to rise. Has the economy changed? And all I see is a whole lot of stimulus and a whole lot of debt that was added to the system that's still working its way through the system. Now, the problem with the debt is a lot of that debt, all of the government debt, and you know a lot of corporate debt used on buybacks, a lot of individual debt used to buy boats, used to buy non-productive assets, was used non-productively. So what helps you today, I go out and I borrow money to buy a Corvette. I help the economy by you know, buying a $100,000 car or whatever it costs. But every day going forward, I have to pay back that debt, which is less to spend on something else. So we're still at that point where people are buying the Corvettes, where more people are buying Corvettes and starting to pay off their debts. But every day we go on, you have more debts to pay off. And the way we look at it, look at it is that we're actually worse off. Those trends are worse off today than they were in 2019 because there's much more non-productive debt. Demographics have only gotten worse over the you know three or four years, as will continue. It's very predictable. And there's really no sign that productivity rates are changing or getting any better. So uh, you know we're in the camp that those economic and inflation trend lines will go down and bond yields will follow them as they have for the last 40 years. But right now we're in a period where people are confused, where, you know, the Fed is starting to mumble about, you know, potentially a 3% inflation rate that, you know, Larry Summers is out there saying that rates are going to be at 4%. And what he's really implying is that the economy is going to be growing faster than it was, than the sub 2% rate it was before COVID. And I think once we get all of this, again, the stimulus and everything that's happened out of the system, we're going to find ourselves back where we were in 2019. And with that will be much lower yields. Okay. So you think that that interest rates and yields are headed lower from here exactly when TBD, but but you're still on that train. I don't see any reason to suspect that the long-term economic trends in this country, the productivity trends, the inflation trends have changed. They've temporarily changed because of everything that's happened, but I don't see any reason when we're looking at 2026, 2029, that those trends will still not be in place, barring, you know, something between now and then that happens to radically change that. All right. I want to bring the other guys in here, but I got to ask because you just said it. You just mentioned 2026, 2029. Is that kind of the timeline you have on your your long bond trade or do you? No, no. We think that once the economy starts to slow down, which, again, could be soon, could be 2024, that rates will start coming down. We think that inflation will be a little tough to read over the coming months. But again, that will come down sharply as it you know, as it was for the last 40 years. Um, so look, we love bonds here, long-term bonds, because we think rates are going back to, you know, 10-year rates could go back to sub 1%. And they're at over four, you know, four and a quarter percent now. That's a huge principal gain if that happens. If it doesn't happen, you're picking up a four and a quarter percent coupon 
for the next 10 years, which should also outweigh the performance of stocks over 10 years. So, you know, the, the risk, obviously, is that rates keep going higher. But that risk, I think, actually helps us, too. If rates go higher, it just further breaks the economy and pushes rates lower at least in the shorter run. For, forces a rescue where rates have right. to come down. Um, so other speakers, I'm going to let you just raise your finger if you've got something to add on to any of this rather than dial through everybody. So if you've got something to say, want to chime in, raise your finger, I'll call you. All right, Jonathan, I'm going to, I'm going to call you. I'm going to, let me just ask one last thing of, of Michael so that you can respond to it as well, Jonathan, which is um, Jack B kind of captures this. Um, here's his comment. Uh, you know, TLT traded even lower before the great financial crisis and ZERP. Uh, it's picking up nickels right now because when the debt bubble collapses and the US Treasury has to sell two plus trillion dollars of debt instruments next year. So I think Janet Yellen has announced that the, the US Treasury is gonna be borrowing almost like two trillion in the second half of this year. So there's this, this narrative now of, oh my gosh, the supply of treasuries is about to explode. And that's gonna raise yields even higher because the market has to absorb all that. How worried are you about that? Not very. The The supply of bonds has been steadily increasing for the last 40 plus years. And the interest rate on bonds has been steadily declining for the last 40 plus years. There's, uh, yeah, temporarily a, a surge in supply can weigh on, you know, prices on yield, bond prices, bond yields. But the government has no choice to get, you know, as your first question said, to keep this scheme going. They will do what it takes to keep interest rates low, to keep the debt manageable. And I have little doubt that our leaders are going to change and actually do the right things. So, uh, you know, yes, supply may increase. But again, I, I think that that the only way the government can afford its scheme where it borrows a whole lot more than it spends is to have much lower interest rates, which means they have to squash inflation now. And then at some point they'll they'll do whatever it takes to get rates back down. Okay, Jonathan, we're headed to you here. Yeah, just just a couple of qu quick comments, and uh, I enjoyed the discussion uh, with Michael there, and uh, and largely agree with m most of his uh, most of his points there. But, but when you're talking about interest rates, it's interesting that everyone keeps saying oh, rates are going to continue to go higher and higher and higher. Um, and there's no doubt that's been the pressure for the last little while. But we also, if you look, if you look at history, most people will just continue to extrapolate from the immediate past and just keep walking things up. It wasn't that long ago that interest rates anomaly, even in the U.S. and Canada, were going to go negative, which they never did anomaly. Um, and people, again, will always just continue to push in the direction that we've seen over the last little while. So you have to be careful about that bias. And you have to go back to the fundamentals, which is what we're talking about. And that is the indebtedness is incredibly high. The cost of capital has gone up. It's starting to pinch. It's going to be put, put a lot of pressure on the economy, on businesses, on personal spending, consumption, and so on. And so I think we are getting closer to the very top of the of the uh, of the interest rate uh, cycle this time around, simply because of that pain. Could it go incrementally a little bit higher? Maybe we get 4.5 on the uh, on the 10 year. Yeah, we could. Um, but I think, Michael, if you're a, a bit of a longer term investor, and you're looking at this thing for the next couple of years, then, boy, we are really, I think, at the higher end and the returns could be quite substantial if you're patient and uh, you're willing to, to wait through some of the difficulties. The other point I'd make is that uh, my view of the central banks is not a, not I don't have a high regard for, for, for central banks. And so uh, I think they make mistakes all the time. And I think that they probably will make another mistake here and go too far uh, because that's the pressure. 
and uh, that will provide opportunities for investors who are prudent, who can take a you know medium to longer term view. And I think it will also um, cause uh, more problems in terms of the stock market. We could get more volatility and uh, a lot more opportunities surfacing from the stock point of view also, along with the long, longer term bonds. So you have to be very selective in terms of where you're investing. Last thing I'd just say is that, you know, in terms of the global market, I mean, we're seeing a lot of pressure. I mean, Europe is under, you know, not doing very well, a lot of not much growth over there. China's got issues now. Um, that's been a command economy for decades. And uh, we know command economies eventually will blow. Um, they will not, you know, they're not prudent allocators of capital. And so they've got all these other pressures too, I think, which will eventually cause the Fed to have to ease up on some of their, uh, some of the monetary policy. And uh, in terms of the government spending, I mean, the government's cannot continue. I mean, the U.S. is going to be running close to a $2 trillion deficit this year. It's already peaked, you know, 1.6. Um, that is not sustainable. And so I think investors need to also be careful about protecting their purchasing power and where they're going to be investing uh, to try to protect uh, from, a, from a falling value of dollars and currencies in general uh, around the world. Okay. What I kind of hear you saying there, Jonathan, is you're, you're climbing on my bandwagon that I've been on for a while about the lag effect, uh, that it's just really going to, it's going to matter. Um, even though for some reason right now, the market has really kind of convinced itself that we dodged that bullet. And, you know, for even forget about a soft landing, there's going to be no landing. I hear you saying, nope, you know, we're not going to be able to push reality uh, off into infinity this time. These chickens are going to come home to roost. As you mentioned, you're seeing it increasingly happen there in your home country, perhaps even at a faster rate than we're seeing here in the U.S. So at some point, something will break. Central banks are going to have to react to that. They're going to bring rates down. That's their playbook. That's what's going to bring bond prices up even more so on the long end of the curve here. So, um, and, and, and that yeah. can happen. That can happen very quickly. Yeah, people should not be lulled into complacency. We've seen that before. All of a sudden, you can have something break, and things can move very quickly from you know one one view of the market, and it can radically radically change. So, you, I think you want to be prepared ahead of that in terms of how, where you're investing and how you're positioned. Yeah, and and on that point, um, I'd like for you guys to corroborate this, but. Um, there are things that move on the news and then there are things that move once they express themselves in the economy and when the fed announces a policy change um, in interest rates bonds tend to move on the news they tend to move very quickly because the, the market can do the math right and say oh okay you know if we were pricing bonds for a rising interest rate environment and now all of a sudden the fed has changed policy and you know we can look at what happened in previous times in history. The bond market will start repricing really quickly. And the reason why I'm underlying underscoring this is because this position in bonds, I believe, is when you want to be in before the Fed policy shift. Because if you aren't, you're going to miss a good chunk of the of the appreciation in the bond market because a lot of it's going to get priced in right when the news happens. I see you guys sort of nodding here, but is, is, is that generally true? I can, add, I can add, yes. So thank you. Great, great comments by Michael and Jonathan. Um, you know, we could spend a, a whole uh, hour plus talking about interest rates in the bond markets, but I uh, just want to add a couple of things. So I think all of us uh, professional investment managers got to think about things in terms of uh, probabilities, uh, upside versus downside risk. And we've had a pretty dramatic move in, in interest rates higher. Um, Ten-year Treasury bond right now is at 4.33 or so percent. Um, we think certainly that could make a run to four and a half, maybe even five in, in an extreme scenario in the short term. Uh, not, not a forecast, but we can allow for that. But let's take that for what it is, assume that happened. Um, there's a notion in, in bond investing, uh, a, a, a 
thing called duration. And you can actually calculate what impact that would have on, for example, TLT was the focus of a couple of questions. And the duration for TLT is about 17, 18 years. So if you assumed in simple math, it's not quite linear, but if you take a, a percentage move in interest rates and multiply it by the duration, that translates to roughly what the move in, the, in that particular bond security would be. So for example, if we assumed interest rates went from 4.33 to 4.5 in a 10 year, and let's assume that extrapolated out to, to the 30 year, TLT is a 20 plus year, um, you know, that 0.15% you know, increase in interest rate, that time times uh, about 17 gives you roughly what the move is. And, you know, I, I'm too slow to do the math in my head, but 0.15 times uh, 17, that would suggest about two and a half, three percent down move in TLT. If we went to five percent, it'd be more like a you know more maybe maybe more like a, a twelve percent uh, decline in TLT. Again, not linear, but just give you a scale of of magnitude of moves. We think that in the, in the near term, we're, we're likely to see a bounce in in, in long term bonds. We have about a seven and a half percent position in long term bonds right now. Effectively, we had fifteen percent, but we had hedges in place on half that kicked in and essentially took half of that off the table from downside risk at about 98 on TLT. So last, uh, you know, you know, move in TLT, we were largely insulated uh, for at least half of our position. But we do think that the, the likelihood is that we're going to see a, a bounce in longer term bonds and these interest rates come off in the near term. We're a little less sanguine about the long term. Um, we cannot dismiss the 40 year uh, trend of declining interest rates that we think is not going to be the four years ahead. We think we're going to see a much more challenging bond market in, in the years ahead than we saw over the, over the last 40 years. And then one final comment on interest rates. You know, we, we, one can't talk about interest rates without uh, thinking about the impact on the stock market. Um, there's this thing called the yearnings yield, um, where effectively we agree with Michael, what Michael said, if, 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 if you were looking for a 10 year return and you had to lock it in today, Absolutely, we think ten-year Treasury bonds will likely do better than the S and P, for example, over the next ten years. Not suggesting you folks go do that, but if you had to buy and hold for the next ten years, we think the ten-year Treasury is a better bet than than the S and P five hundred. And we can think about the stock market as having duration as well. And the longest duration part of the stock market is the tech sector. Um, so just like long duration bonds could get hit by uh, interest rate increases, so so too. Could the tech sector and frankly i think much of the rally we've seen in the tech sector this year is basically been at odds with what the bond market has done um you know it's 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 almost at odds uh, between the two markets that the tech sector has rallied in the face of these interest rate increases so in some ways we think the stock market has some catch up to the downside uh to 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 have relative to the bond market uh, i'll stop there <laughs> all right no great a lot of great territory covered okay so i'm going to um I'm going to shift gears to a totally different topic. Um, and uh, we've also got some questions here about gold. Folks, I'm just keeping an eye on the time here. I want to make sure I, I squeeze in the key questions that you guys seem to care most about here. Hey, folks, do me a favor, too. Just um, I always like to ask during these things, uh, let me know if you like this live format, if you're enjoying it. Um, if you are, we will do our best to do more of these where you, you know, I think it's really nice to have the audience interaction here. Um, so if you guys indeed do like that, let me know and, and we'll continue to make that a priority. Um, I'm going to pull up this question here by Rob Williams. What's going to happen internationally with all the real estate issues in China on top of what's going on with the whole BRICS you know, trade coalition that's trying to de-dollarize? 
Um, but let's talk about China for a second, folks, because that's been in the news a lot. Um, you know, China at the end of last year, that was the great hope, right? In, at the end of 2022, when things looked really dark, okay, China's reopening from its extreme COVID lockdown, and that's going to be what, what powers global growth ahead in 2023, and that's what's really going to save us. Seems like that's really been a disappointment, uh, the, the impulse from China reopening. Um, and now we're seeing a lot of headlines coming out there that they're having a lot of really big internal problems, particularly around their real estate sector. Chinese real estate is estimated by Goldman Sachs as the largest asset in the world. And uh, you know there were issues we saw back at the end of 2021 with Evergrande Bank, which was a big property lender. Uh, that company just, uh, I think last week, just a couple of days ago, just declared, uh, filed for bankruptcy uh, here in the States. So still continued woes there, but then their largest property developer, I think a, a company called Country Garden has now just recently entered default. And then there's another big player, I'm forgetting the name uh, in, the, uh, in their shadow uh, banking sector uh, that has now entered default as well. So it seems like really big, really important dominoes are starting to fall there in the financial and banking system. Um, very curious to hear your guys' opinion on how much this is going to matter. Um, presumably, if there's real trouble there, it sounds like that that's a candidate for some sort of contagion that that's not just going to be contained within China. It's, it, it's going to have some impact on the global economy. Which one of you guys is interested in talking about that? Someone better raise their finger or I'm just going to pull and shoot. All right, Michael. So, uh, yeah, look, we know China has been grossly building out their real estate well beyond what the demand was and the hope that was that over time it would fill in with their as their population grew wealthier. And it just hap hasn't happened nearly as quick as they were hoping it was going to happen. I mean, you know, 60 Minutes did a great report on this. What was that? Seven, eight years ago where they're showing entire cities that were empty, malls that were empty. Uh, so this has been coming to roost for a long time. And I, I think the most important part of this is, is that, yeah, there, there are certainly some risks to the financial markets here in the United States and around the world. But China was the marginal driver of economic growth around the world. They were just, you know, the, you know, a billion plus people and they are the second largest economy and they grew substantially. And it wasn't just them growing, but everything they were doing was helping other, most of the other developed nations at least grow as well. So, you know, they're, they're they've reopened finally a lot. It took them a lot longer than us and their economy is struggling. Unlike us, they're not, they're, their citizens are not going out and spending money and, and uh, you know, acting like every day is a holiday. They've really retrenched. And China's trying to figure out what to do about that. They lowered rates a week or two ago. They're dealing with a weaker yuan, which does help their exports, but then they lose capital. Uh, you know, internal capital tries to flee the country, whether they're buying gold or Bitcoin or whether they're somehow getting the money out of the country. So, you know, they got a big problem on their hands. And I think for from the American point of view is, will some of that money that China has invested in the U.S. get pulled from the U.S. to come back home? Will more money from China go to the U.S. as they try to try to get out of that, try to avoid the sinking yuan? And, uh, you know, the, back to the back to economic trends. 
they are not going to be growing as much as they were. And, you know, their growth rate has been slowing substantially for a while. And I think it just further affirms that. And that will weigh on economic growth in the U.S. and Europe and everywhere else. Okay, so you do see this as sort of a contagion risk to the U.S. economy, sort of TBD, what the magnitude is going to be. Absolutely to the economy. How it affects the financial markets is a little different. Um, and that we'll have to wait and see, you know, how much money do the Goldman Sachs and JP Morgans and big hedge funds and pension funds have invested in China? Will China support their markets? Uh, but absolutely slowing Chinese economic growth is not good for the world economic growth. All right. Anybody else want to comment either on the China, uh, developments and or BRICS, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, just a couple of things. I mean, I think it's, it's important for everybody to remember that command economies do not work long term. And so the capital misallocation in China as a communist country has been incredibly large. And so some of this is coming back to hurt um, productivity. Um, just a couple of stats um, that we've been looking at in terms of China, because we're often, you know, we're concerned about some contagion. How does it, how does it impact commodity prices and so on? I um, mean, their productivity growth is now down to uh, about one percent, if that. Their youth unemployment also is incredibly high. Uh, the latest statistics, 16 to 24, you got over 21% of unemployment. And that's in, a, that's in an economy where you don't have as many young people because of the demographics. You have the serious demographics. And their trade is uh, dropping substantially also. So I, I think there are going to be some spillover effects. It's difficult to know exactly how, 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 that, how bad that's going to be. But we certainly are watching the companies that we're investing in and making sure that their exposure to China is as little as possible. And um, I think that the China situation is, is concerning and we need to keep our eyes on. It. And it's just another one of those reasons why I think global growth will just be a little more challenged going forward, especially on top of the interest rate increases and the attempt to slow down economies so that we can tame inflation. So all of these things are coming together I think people need to be careful and watch and uh, very watchful and uh, and, uh, you know, just watching where they're putting their money and making sure they don't have you know, exposures that might surprise them. OK, um, you, you talked about the misallocation of capital um, in a command economy like China. And, and certainly, you know, we're talking about the, the, the all of a sudden the vulnerability we're seeing in China's real estate market and, and China's famous for having these ghost cities, right? I mean, just these, these massive installations where real estate's been built and it's sort of like a place to park your wealth, but nobody really lives in these places. And what's interesting is, you know, uh, uh, unlike an asset like gold or like the Yap stones of old, where just everybody agreed that this is where we, we preserve wealth, at least those assets didn't deteriorate over time, you know? houses do, you know, they depreciate because you have the weather and termites and, you know, just all sorts of factors that, that, that deteriorate the actual intrinsic value of, of the asset over time. Um, so uh, we're seeing cracks there. We'll see where that goes, but I, I want to use this as just a quick segue to talk about uh, the housing markets, let's say in North America, uh, since we've got Canadian representation here. Um, uh, how, I guess very quickly, how do you think this is going to resolve? We've had mortgage rates more than double since a year and a half ago. Jonathan, you just mentioned that, you know, there's now stories coming out in Canada of people whose house housing payments literally are doubling when their their um, 
mortgages need to be refinanced. Um, are we going to see a material housing correction in North America, US, Canada? Um, forgive me, for, I'm asking forgiveness of our viewers from Mexico. We just don't have a Mexican advisor yet. Um, but uh, you know, are we gonna see a material price correction um, on average uh, in our countries uh, as a result of, of these higher interest rates or are we somehow gonna be able to dodge that bullet? And you know, there is just so much ink being spilled on this people arguing very vehemently on both sides of the equation. So curious what you guys think. Who wants to tackle this? Mike Preston, I'm going to ask you, and it looks like you're trying to answer anyways. Just unmute yourself. I'm sorry. I was muted. Yeah, I'll answer that. And, um, and just mm -hmm. one wrap-up comment on the BRICS question, which was part of this kind of real estate issue in China question. Um, just a reminder that the BRICS leaders are meeting today. The meeting starts today in Johannesburg uh, on the 22nd, and it goes for two days until the 24th. And they're trying to come up with an alternative trade currency, you know, call it a BRICS currency. And we'll see how successful they are. We'll, we'll see what the vote looks like, first of all. That's the most important thing. I would expect some news by the weekend that talks about, you know, what they voted. There's nine applicants for this new system already in Saudi Arabia is one of them. And I think there's like 22 on the waiting list. And so we'll see, we'll see what, uh, what the vote is and what the scheme is. That could, that could be something majorly important for the markets. It won't change things overnight, but I think it will be a major uh, shift in direction. The first big one we've seen in, in decades, you know, really the U S dollar has been the boss for, you know, four decades or more. And so this could be, a turning point. We'll we'll have to check and see what happens there. You talked about the housing market in the U.S. and Canada. I mean, there's no surprise. It's been an absolute bubble along with everything else. In 2021, you know, the blow off that we saw in, in housing was breathtaking to say the least. I don't think I I certainly have never seen anything like it. I think that most people alive have never seen anything like it. We had housing prices that were going up by 20 to 30 percent a year. You know, we've seen a doubling in the last five or six years and even more in some pockets. And the surprising thing is we still haven't seen much of a pullback, only a few percent maybe. Uh, or maybe the time on markets a little bit longer. You used to have a bidding war. You know, I remember back a year and a half ago or so, there was a bidding war and you had to get your bids in by, you know, four o'clock or you'd be shut out and, and everyone was bidding 20 or 30 or $50,000 above the asking price. I think that's got to be ending here with rates up at seven and a half percent or so. I'm shocked that we haven't seen a more kind of rapid decline in housing. And Michael pointed out earlier that the average mortgage rate has only gone up from like 3.2 to 3.6, I think he said. And when you frame it that way, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But in my mind, homes are really priced on the margin. And so that if new people move into the neighborhood, and, you know, they don't, they can't pay up or certainly can't bid over asking price. And, you know, sellers eventually get frustrated with longer days on the market. Well, then housing starts to go for a lower price. And, you know, if you had a, if you had two houses next to each other, they were a million each. But, you know, one neighbor sells his for 900K. Well, everything else gets repriced pretty quickly. So I personally am not that confident that we won't see a drop in, in the housing market of a larger degree. I think it will lag the stock market. I think the stock market, as I said before, has has already topped and, and who knows when the next leg lower is gonna come. But if it comes, and I think it's likely to happen by the end of the year, we should see housing follow 
you know, three to six months later, max. And so I would expect a 20 to 30% pullback in the housing market across the board and a much larger one in stocks. That's just my opinion. Um, And so I'll I'll take a pause there. Okay. Well, those are big numbers. Anybody else want to comment on housing? Yep, Michael. Yeah, I I agree with Mike. But the one issue I think that is keeping house prices up right now is that no one wants to sell and get rid of their 3% mortgage. It's financially, it's a really tough thing to sell a house with a 3% mortgage, go buy a new house, even if it's a smaller house, certainly, you know, a bigger house would be much harder and take a seven plus percent mortgage. So the, the existing, you know, used home market right now is basically at a standstill. There's very little activity and there still are buyers. So those buyers are outnumbering the sellers and they're still able to keep prices where they're at, even put in some neighborhoods, pushing them higher. Uh, but until the market can fully open up and operate normally, I think house prices can kind of stay where they're at. But again, I think longer run, they will be falling as you get a much more of a two-way flow in the markets. Yeah. Well, so there's there's only two things that are, or, or there's two main things that are going to thaw the market, the, the, the freezing that you're talking about, right? What, one is either that uh, interest rates are going to come back down right? And a seller can get a property for an equivalent amount of what they're going to sell their home for, right? Um, maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't. The, the other equivalent is that prices will come down. <laughs> and that even though you're getting a, you're paying a higher mortgage rate at a lower home price, um, the, the, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's not like you're trading an equivalent home just for a more expensive number, right? The, the, the math begins to work. Um, and what's interesting is, is we've talked a lot about in this channel, um, even with the freeze, there are transactions that are happening, right? There are organic transactions that are going to happen no matter what, even if everybody wants to stay in their house because it's got a 2.9% mortgage on it, right? People are going to die, going to be divorces, job loss, et cetera, right? So that will slowly be doing the price discovery that Mike Preston was talking about. And what's interesting is, is once it gets to a certain level, you know, there's a lot of people there that are sitting on a lot of equity right now. And, and for a good number of people, kind of like their retirement is their home equity. And once they start seeing that get eroded away enough, there begins to become a, a, a fear and a, a real incentive to become a first mover, right? Which is why well, I better sell now, better to capture at least 90% of my home's equity um, than, than hold on and watch it just dwindle away in front of my eyes. So there's some, as long as interest rates stay this high, there's some level of deterioration that once we hit should potentially start a cascade. I see you guys nodding. If anybody disagrees with that, feel free to chime in. Yeah, Adam, I'll, uh, I'll just yeah. say, I think um, you know, there are a lot of folks that don't have mortgages, for example, and, and it's all equity, right? And maybe not a large percentage, but it only, it only requires a couple of houses moving on the margin to reprice the market and nothing to motivate sellers than uh, for them to start to see prices dropping. And, and in the early stages, I think you're going to see people start to say, hey, I got to get out while they're getting this good. And um, price action can can create all kinds of behavior. Uh, and and I, I think what might start as a, um, a walk may run towards a stampede at some point. This may be a Hemingway correction. The housing market corrects slowly and then all at once. Um, all right, guys, last question here. We've had a number of questions about this. No huge surprise. Gold. Um, this is sort of a specific question, which is how concerned are you that gold will tank with equities and the liquidity and credit crunch like the global financial crisis? Um, 
I'm going to think most of you guys are going to say, yeah, sure. If we have a washout in the markets, gold might get sold because when that happens, people get margin calls and you just sell what has value. If you've got anything else to add to that, please do. Um, but let's just kick this up to a higher level, which is what's your outlook for gold, right? Gold is, has sort of been struggling of late. Um, it's down what at around like 1920-ish an ounce, I think today while we're talking here. Um, it had been kind of up closer to 2000, um, but it's just been kind of slowly lagging here. Um, is this weakness that you expect to return and recover? Or do you think gold is, is in danger of falling below a technical level that then leads to even lower prices? I'll start us off there. I mean, we, we think gold is, and gold mining stocks can be are a very important part of the equation and everything comes down to position size. But absolutely, do we not think it's the silver bullet, excuse the, the pun. Uh, and, and absolutely, if we get a, a, a massive sell off across many asset classes, there's no reason to, to think that gold could not be also um, caught up in that downdraft. Um, it may be short-lived. Let's go back to, for example, um, the COVID sell-off in March of 2020. If you look at a basket of gold mining stocks, they dropped about 50% uh, in a few weeks' time, month or month or so time. Uh, but they, in sympathy with the broad stock market sell-off, uh, but they bounced back very quickly. And unlike the broad stock market, gold mining stocks are quite undervalued relative, for example, to the price of gold itself. So, so gold need not increase in price. Uh, to still um, warrant a, a rise in gold mining stocks. All in cost of production is somewhere in the low, you know, 12 to 1300s area, give or take. Um, so there's plenty of margin with gold prices where they are right now. Um, we think obviously the, the, the real follow on is what happens to, to monetary policies. And, and we could see a scenario where gold prices easily get to 2500, even in the short term. But um, if we get any kind of um, QE-like response or, or lowering of interest rates, uh, real rates start to drop, we can see gold go up quite a bit because of all the debt that has been uh, loaded onto the system and, and the likely pressures that we'll have on purchasing power of, of fiat currencies. But it's all about position size and, and um, you know, wouldn't put all your eggs in that basket by any stretch, but we think it's a very important part of, of a, a properly diversified portfolio. Great. Jonathan, I'm coming to you on this topic, too. I know gold's something you guys watch closely and you invest in a number of miners. And maybe in your answer, too, if you can just talk about your current evaluation of the mining sector, because it's been lagging even more than gold here. Yeah, a couple of things. I, I, I agree with the, the previous comments. Um, the, the Anything gets sell off if, if in a dra dramatic situation, even the best assets can be sold uh, in order to raise liquidity. But the key here is what's going to bounce back and what's going to hold value through the whole period of time. And I think uh, certainly uh, a reasonable position in gold is a smart thing to do in this, in this environment. I think if you look at gold as a weighting, as a valuation, as a percentage of the, you know, the Dow, if you look at it as a percentage of the market, the, um, the money supply that's out there, um, it is relatively inexpensive, quite inexpensive uh, versus other periods of time. And so at uh, 1922, we think that uh, there could be substantial upside. Um, as I already mentioned before, we are concerned about purchasing power protection, the, the indebtedness, the Fed will eventually have to go back in and start printing money. Um, there's no way you can raise that kind of um, kind of money on the on the bond markets to to cover the kind of deficits that continue to be racked up. Um, so I think there will be pressure um, for uh, gold to go up and people will flock to it um, to protect their 
their purchasing power and their their wealth. It's interesting also, so far this year, the net purchaser of gold has been central banks. And so they continue to uh, to buy in large numbers, especially um, outside of the West. And I think there's a good reason for that because I think they're concerned about stability of currencies also. So we continue to just chip away. It's about 15, 18% of our overall client portfolios. As you've pointed out, we uh, buy um, some of the miners. We do have a couple of miners, not very many of the pure miners. We do have some Agnico Eagle, which we think is a very high quality miner. And uh, we also buy uh, pr predominantly the royalty companies. So we do have exposure to Franco Nevada and, and um, wheat and precious metals and royal gold and uh, some sandstorm on Cisco and so forth. Uh, we love the royalty companies because we've talked about before the cash flow generators. And uh, many of these companies are generating substantial free cash flow. At $1,900 an ounce, the royalty company's margins are in some cases $1,600. I mean, they only have a cost of maybe $300. Uh, an ounce. And uh, we think also silver is uh, relatively inexpensive also. So the other thing with some of the royalty companies we're buying, um, the Franco's, uh, the Wheaton, precious metals, and uh, some of the other ones, the Cisco to a lesser extent, they also have some exposure to copper. And uh, copper is very important for the whole EV transition and uh, also some nickel. So there's a little base metal in there, which we don't mind providing they are exposed to the base metals that are really in high demand over the next five to 10 years. Um, so we think it's a good opportunity. Some of these companies are, have been beaten down. They have no respect in the marketplace. People are chasing NVIDIA. And when you're chasing NVIDIA, usually uh, try to look somewhere else. And we think uh, the gold sector is a great place to be just nibbling away, picking away, keeping a, a reasonable um, part of your uh, portfolio there. Uh, it's a great insurance policy. Okay, great. Um, we're going to have to start wrapping it up here real quick. Just lightning round. Um, there have been some questions here about um, owning commodity stocks. Um, I would say probably a particular question about is this a good time to be in the energy uh, related stocks? Um, I believe, if I recall, almost everybody here has some exposure and thinks pretty positively about the energy sector right now as an investment. But why don't we do a quick dial through? Michael Leibowitz? Yeah, we, we have exposure to Exxon. And uh, we've had exposure to various other energy companies. You know, the, the, the good and bad with energy is it's kind of tied to the economy. So if we are correct, the economy starts tailing off, whether it's late this year, early next year, mid-year, energy prices will most likely come down, which will have a negative effect. Uh, but certainly over the last few months, they've been outperforming the market. They show up on our in our relative and absolute valuations as the strongest, not valuations in our assessments as the strongest uh, sector right now. And, you know, the price has come off a little, but it still came down from like 85 to 80, but it's still strong. The, uh, you know, we've seen the supply weaken in part because of OPEC. And, uh, but again, it's kind of a function of the price of oil. But, it, you know, in the long run, energy stocks are cheap. And a lot of these energy stocks, uh, you know, Exxon is diversifying into non-carbon energy, which should help them in the long run. They, they just bought a, uh, a lithium, an area to mine for lithium and a processing plant in Arkansas for it, for carbon sequestration. So, you know, I think from a valuation perspective, they make a lot of sense. But at the end of the day, it's the price of oil that kind of drives the shorter term price movements. Okay. Anyone else want to add to that? All right, I see a lot of nodding heads. Okay. 
Seems like we're all in agreement. All right, well, we're gonna wrap it up here, folks. Real quick, uh, there was a question that came in from this user, Mo Ah. Uh, they paid uh, to ask this question, so I want to address it here as we leave. Uh, could you invite Halal Professional Investor? I think your audience, myself, would like to learn a different financial system. I actually don't know this Halal Investor system that this person's referring to. Um, Mo, uh, feel free to email us at info at wealthion.com. Provide a link to this professional you're talking about or more information about the system. I will look into it. And thank you for paying to, to ask that question. All right. Um, as we wrap up here, um, I just want to use my little magic tools here. Um, one uh, reminder for everybody that we uh, always recommend on this channel that people um, work under the guidance of a good financial advisor. These are the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. Um, there's nothing like more I can tell you about them and their skills than you haven't already intuited uh, you know, in this video and all their previous appearances on this channel. But if you'd like to have a free conversation with these folks, it's super easy. Just go to Wealthion.com. You can see the URL down there at the bottom of the screen. These consultations, totally free. There's no strings attached. There's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a free public service they offer to help people become smarter and better informed um, investors when making their investment decisions. Um, I also just want to remind folks that, uh, again, we have the Wealthion conference coming up. Um, if you've not attended one of our conferences in the past, um, they, I got to say, they really are great events. Um, don't take my word for it. Take uh, people's comments here in, in, the, in the live stream uh, who have attended. Um, but let me just give you the lineup for uh, this year's one or this fall's one. Um, we've got Lacey Hunt coming back. Uh, he normally does our keynotes. So he'll be doing the keynote for this one again. And for those that have uh, seen Lacey in action in the past, I mean, these are graduate level presentations uh, worth the cost of attending in and of themselves. So we kick it off with Lacey. We then have James Grant talking about his, uh, you know, probably the greatest expert on interest rates uh, alive today. Uh, he'll be telling us where he thinks they're headed and what the implications will be. Uh, we'll have Mike Kantrowitz back here. I mentioned that at the beginning of this video. He'll be giving us the latest update on his HOPE framework outlook. We'll have Kyle Bass talking about the biggest geopolitical risks to the global economy. We'll have Stephanie Pomboy on talking about inflation and deflation forces and, and, and how they're likely to play out next year. We'll have Ivy Zellman uh, updating us on the housing market. And we'll have additional commentary on the housing market from Nick Jurley and Amy Nixon, both of whom have appeared on this channel in the past. Uh, we're going to have a really smart expert, uh, this guy named Michael Leibowitz, who's going to be talking about uh, his outlook for the bond market and strategies for investing in bonds. We'll have Rick Rule talking about natural resource investing and investing in commodity plays like we just talked about. Then we're going to talk about the, the energy sector. Um, we're going to have Doomberg uh, give kind of a general overview, but then he's going to be joined by Justin Hewn, and they're going to talk specifically about the opportunity that nuclear is offering right now. Um, if you saw my recent video with, with Justin, you kind of got the context with how quickly things are changing there and the bright future that nuclear investing likely has ahead of it. Um, obviously, we're going to have more Q&A with our advisors who will be there with us all day long. We have a few other folks uh, that are still going to be joining the lineup. But as you can tell, it's going to be it's a power packed faculty, perhaps probably the, the most power packed one we've ever had. Uh, so if you want to learn more about the conference uh, and potentially register, go to Wealthion.com slash conference. You can see the URL at the bottom of the screen there. Just want to let folks know. Uh, right now, if you sign up, you get the early bird price, which is uh, just about 30% off full price ticket. So if you're interested, register now so you can lock that in. 
And if you've attended one of our conferences in the past, check your email. You'll have an email from me uh, giving you uh, an alumni discount code, which will give you an additional 15% discount off of the early bird price. We want to make sure you guys get those benefits early on. Uh, so go register if you're thinking about joining. Um, with that, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me for yet another great month from the comments. Looks like folks really enjoyed this, but obviously folks, let us know below uh, how you like this format. You know, If you'd like to see us continue doing it, if you have any uh, other ideas and how you'd like us to improve it, we're always trying to get better to meet your needs. Mike, John, Mike, Jonathan. Oh, I just realized we got two Mikes and two Johns. Uh, so great to have you guys here. Thanks so much for giving us your time. Everyone else who's been watching, thanks so much for viewing this. Take care, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, thanks for watching, everybody.